You're listening to Clinical Conversations. I'm Joe Elia from the NEJM Group. This is the second in a series of four interviews on the subject of race and clinical equity. In this series of brief chats, we're talking about equity in clinical medicine, the lack of which is a situation that too many Americans face. With me is Dr. Carol Watson, a professor of medicine and cardiology at UCLA, an associate editor of Circulation, where she's putting together an issue on, met- on racial disparities in healthcare for publication this June, and an associate editor of NEJM Journal Watch Cardiology. Welcome, Dr. Watson. Thank you so much for having this important conversation. Last week, we had a preliminary discussion uh, on the topic of racial equity in clinical medicine, during which you talked about a woman's experience with a declining ejection fraction. Would Could you tell that story and its lessons again? Yeah, so I, I have so many examples of structural barriers to good health care that tend to happen to people of disadvantage and often minorities. Um, I had one patient who had um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, non-ischemic. She was managed at another um, hospital and was doing well, but her EF was still 30 and she still felt lousy. When I got her, I found that her medical regimen could have been improved. I put her on Arnie instead of ACE inhibitor. She immediately started to feel better and within probably six months, her ejection fraction had increased up to 50%. She was doing great. Then the uh, new year came, she lost her job, she lost her insurance, and her new insurance would not cover Arnie. So she had to go back on her ACE inhibitor. Her EF fell again to mid thirties. And I just thought, when we have a life-saving medication that can do so much good, why so many structural barriers to getting that? And I then thought about so many of my patients who have the same issues. I, you know, one of the things, I worked at a vaccine clinic earlier for the COVID-19 vaccination. And the way that worked was so beautiful. People drove up. They had already pre-filled out some questions about allergies, reactions, et cetera. We confirmed that, gave them their vaccination, had them wait 15 minutes, and then sent them on their way. There was no money exchange. There was no question about what's your insurance number. There was no question about, can you afford this? It's a life-saving therapy. We need to have access to all of those. Yes, and it's a, as you say, it's a structural feature of our system. Yeah. That that um, that that when that structure disappears, or the present structure disappears, things went very smoothly. It goes smoothly. Yeah. Um, and equity increases. I think the barriers that we put into place for some of our most vulnerable citizens are absolutely increasing inequity and disparities. Now, you co-direct UCLA's program in preventive cardiology. Correct. Uh, Could you talk a bit about how prevention intersects with health equity? Yeah, so many things that I do are things that I can see in black, white, stark figures, the disparities. Things that I feel like are the entrance fee. They aren't special. They aren't high tech. they They aren't really glamorous. 
but they are the things that keep us alive. They are the things like maintaining um, regular physical activity, promoting healthy diets, treating blood pressure, cholesterol and diabetes, things like that, that really we should be offering to everyone. It should not be a specialized service that requires any kind of prior auth for any of that. We need to have time and space to do these things. And that's what we don't often have. And the people that probably should be able to access them the most because they have the greatest need and the most difficulty. So I recall um, a patient I discharged from the hospital after a non-ST um, elevation MI. He was an African-American male in his 50s, very highly motivated to do exactly what was right. The prescription he got sent home on was for cardiac rehab. He met with a dietitian. He was supposed to have five servings of fruits and vegetables daily, things like that. When he looked into cardiac rehab, he realized it was virtually impossible to find one that accommodated his six-day-per-week work schedule. When he tried to buy fruits and vegetables, he said to me, almost almost embarrassingly and apologetically, I can't afford to buy things that are gonna to go to waste in my refrigerator. I have to spend my money wisely. I can barely make it each week. So the things that we think are right for our patients, and indeed they are, we have to make sure they can access them. And that means keeping parks uh, open and, uh, and and clean and walkable and other things. Yeah, I think I, I've, in our preventive cardiology program early on, we actually partnered with um, individuals from urban planning at UCLA because there are so many structural barriers to health that just exist in neighborhoods. And when you look at the inequities from neighborhood to neighborhood, and you look at how that disadvantages people in terms of their health, their economics, their lifestyles, everything, um, we realize it's almost impossible to do everything we want for our patients unless we can get healthier neighborhoods and societies. Um, and we always say, if you make people want to do the right thing, and they will do it if it's affordable, if it's easy, and it's pleasurable. And I think it's very, very realistic that we can design neighborhoods that are all of those. What might individual clinicians do to get movement on the uh, problem of, of equity? What might they do tomorrow that they didn't do in the clinic today? Well, the first thing you can do is the easiest thing is just to pay attention and understand the barriers that exist. Too many times I've heard someone labeled as non-compliant and what they really are is uh, unable to afford. They want to do what's right. Um, we have to understand that a lot of the labels we put on people are really damaging. Um, so they are you know, experiencing homelessness. They're not a homeless person. They are, you know, really, we have to think about things in terms of the structural barriers that exist. And hopefully we can institute interventions that can at least ameliorate some of those structural barriers. It's really hard. I mean, it's really, really hard. So many of those things are not funded that we can access and that we can get our patients to access. But a lot of it is at the heart of good health. You know, um, we talked about, you talked about paying attention 
in, in the clinic. And one of the things that uh, we talked about in the preliminary discussion was being aware of one's own biases. Um, as, as a white person, I took the implicit association test, and I was surprised at the outcome. Um, and I would recommend that uh, if, if you were asking my opinion and you're not. Um, well, and I also want to make sure you understand, it's not just as a white person. Each and every one of us comes to every interaction with our own biases, all of us. And so I think it's a good thing for all of us to take. Okay. All right. Um, you also mentioned in that discussion uh, a, a definition of privilege. Um, and it, by, it was uh, by John Amici, the, uh, the famous um, uh, philosopher and basketball player. Um, do you recall, do you recall what, what he said? Very well. I, I think of it often. He defines privilege as the absence of impediments. And so many people think of privilege and racism as these highly, highly, highly charged words that indicate some nefarious or evil or awful thing. But there's a whole underlayer of privilege that doesn't have to do with you're getting a lot more, but just everything is easier. You walk into a room and no one is looking at the color of your skin automatically and disliking you. It may not be that these people were ready to lynch you, but they automatically didn't like you or thought less of you because of the color of your skin. That is something that you don't have if you have certain privileges. The other thing is most people are not nefariously racist, but there's something called laissez-faire racism. And that's basically, as my son in college puts it, this, you know, a lot of people are racist by accident. And so, for instance, they firmly believe in equity and justice. Those are things that they they are absolutely committed to. So they think they can't be racist. But though they're committed to equality, they're not fighting back against inequality. And that is honestly how many people become racist by accident. Hmm. Well, I know that your time is limited, Dr. Watson. I want to thank you for spending some of it with uh, with me this morning. Thank you so much for really these vital conversations. I hope we can continue to have. So do I.